This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review some issues from my comic book collection, which many episodes I will select kind of at random. Any books from my comic book collection are eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for them. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 89th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Doom 2099, issues 11, 12, and 13 from Marvel Comics, cover dated November and December 1993 and January 1994. Three books to cover this episode, so we'll put off feedback to next time and get ourselves headed straight to Latveria. Oh, and the future. Issues 11 and 12 form a nice two-issue arc, so we're going to look at these ones first and then talk about issue 13 on its own later in the episode. Doom 2099, 11 and 12, each had cover prices of $1.25, meaning I acquired these books at a very nice 80% markdown. These two issues, 11 and 12, were written by John Francis Moore, with art by Pat Broderick and John Nyberg. Both of the covers are also by Broderick and Nyberg. The cover of issue 11 shows our hero Doom looming menacingly, sorry, looming lovingly over strange landscape. And on that bottom third of the cover, someone is holding a large platter with a glass top, and under that cloche is a severed head. The story, titled Faith and Revival, starts with Xandra. In the space of hours, the boundaries of her world have exploded. Before sunrise, she boarded a transport in the pre-dawn chill of the Latverian morning. Now she stands in the afternoon warmth of the Wakandan day, thinking how cold and austere the country she calls home seems compared to the vibrancy and color of this rich African land. Having arrived to begin her guild training, Zandra's first step is to visit the shrine of Thandaza, guardian, warrior, priest, scientist. His wisdom and strength held Wakanda steady through most of this chaotic century. But in addition to being a memorial to Wakanda's long-dead leader, the shrine also holds the genetic records of all Wakandans. Xander goes through a genetic analysis to determine if her lineage is truly Wakandan. But prodigal daughter or not, she is certain to learn more about herself than she expects. In Latveria, Fortune tells Doom that she is leaving for China to find her brother, who she just learned last issue, may still be alive. Doom is so busy going over information on Alchemex's latest project, Valhalla, that he just coldly states that he will see that her duties are taken care of in her absence. I can't believe I expected empathy from you, she says, storming off. She stops to say goodbye to Wire, but Fortune finds that he is plugged into cyberspace, and has been since Xandra left for her training in Wakanda. In the world of cyberspace, Wire Net glides recklessly and stumbles across the digital cowboy, Duke Stratosphere. Editor's note, see episodes 69 and 79 
for more on Duke Stratosphere. Trying to make amends for their last encounter, Stratosphere gives Wire a special passkey. Think of it as a get-out-of-jail-free card, to use an archaic reference. He is giving this to Wire because Wire reminds him of himself in another place and time. In the capital building of Wakanda, the reigning princess Okasan opens a cryo chamber holding Thandaza's remains. Mikalali, leader of the Panther's Guard, warns against her plans to revive the Great Elder, calling it a dangerous course of action. He tells her that she already has the tools to govern Wakanda into the next century without reviving her long-dead grandfather. In the last states of the cancer that consumed Thandaza, the decision was made to preserve him cryonically. But the princess is committed to her cause, and she has the aid of Dr. Celia Quinones. Editor's Note, see episode 59 for Dr. Quinones' first appearance. The doctor, in turn, calls upon Doom for help. And as soon as the Latverian leader arrives in Wakanda, he meets the princess. I find it hard to believe that you are the same Doom mentioned in the memoirs of the elder T'Challa. The panther and I crossed paths, Doom admits. He was a man of honor and of manners. This is a dig at Mikalali, who commented that he trusts no one who hides behind a mask. In the laboratory, they go to work on attaching Thandaza's preserved head to a new cybernetic body. Doom does not understand the princess's desire to relinquish her power. Though I did inherit my grandfather's gift for science, she explains, I did not inherit his vision. Wakanda needs a leader of far-reaching sight. As soon as the neuro-cyber links are connected, Thandaza slowly awakens. Suddenly, Mikalali bursts into the lab, gun blazing. Okasana, I cannot let you place Wakanda's future in the hands of a ghost. You've animated nothing but dead flesh. The shock of the weapons fire hitting the main console creates an, an energy feedback pulse that goes straight into the Elder. Mikalali believes he has stopped them from making a terrible mistake, but Doom knows the truth. No, Panther, your meddling has made things far worse. Thandaza's premature awakening drives him mad. See, he had no time to integrate the reality of his revival into his newly animated self. Doom knows he needs to subdue the man quickly before he recognizes that he is in control of a vibranium-reinforced body. We take a quick respite from the battle to witness some of Xander's training in a jungle setting not too far from the capital. As she begins her first training session, they hear a loud boom. We revisit the lab, the source of the boom. The Cyber King has burst through the walls. You've made me a monster. We learn that Doom was plugged into Wakanda's technology databases while he was aiding in the surgery, a little Latverian-style hacking. Because of that connection, he understands that now King Thandaza is draining power from the grid at an alarming rate, enough to genuinely worry Doom. And he should be worried, we see on the last page, as Thandaza rains blow after blow to the Latverian leader. To be concluded. Well then, 
let's conclude it. Right here. Right now. The cover of issue 12 shows the crazed Wakandan cyborg Thandaza standing dramatically on a rock outcropping with lightning shooting dramatically from his hands. Behind him is Doom's outstretched left hand. If you lay issues 10, 11, and 12 next to each other, you see that the backgrounds intersect to form a dramatic image of Doom himself dramatically overseeing the drama. The story, Fire and Rain, starts in the atmosphere above the verdant African nation of Wakanda. The advanced satellites that regulate Wakanda's weather are malfunctioning, setting off hurricane-force winds and lightning strikes that assault the land below. It's worse than anyone could have imagined. Okasana and Dr. Quinones will attempt to shut down the system, but being connected directly into the Wakandan mainframe, Thandaza's rampage is wreaking havoc on the power network. Instead of reviving the compassionate sage of decades gone, the princess unleashed a crazed monstrosity upon her country. Back in Latveria, Wire observes these events via the screens in Doom's lab, but he's caught by a security robot left by Doom, which instructs him to leave. The robot is a prototype and has all its circuitry exposed, allowing Wire to reprogram it. I think I can convince this little guy to let me stay in the lab after all. Among the chaos of fleeing people, Xandra and her guild instructor attempt to safeguard the lives of civilians. When she saves one woman's small child, the mother claims to recognize her. Sacred mother, I'm standing before a ghost. In the capital, Okasan confronts Mikalali about his act of violence. He accuses her of fleeing her responsibility as leader of the people by seeking to resurrect Thandaza with the foreigners. You brought this abomination upon yourself. She threatens to exile him and strikes him but he is a member of the Panther elite and easily takes her down. Then suddenly Thandaza strikes and kills Mikalali from behind. And just as the Elder prepares to do the same to his granddaughter, the Princess, Doom reappears and challenges him again. While Doom occupies the Elder with physical combat, his armor systems attempt to connect to the Wakanda network so that he can shut off the man's power. He tells Thandaza his neural circuits were not designed to channel this much energy and that he'll burn himself out. You understand nothing, the Wakandan replies. I am already dead. Poet interrupts Wire viewing of the fight to ask after Fortune. He tells Poet that she's in China looking for her brother Kaz. Poet was preparing to head to New York to crash the opening of Valhalla but he contacts another techno-hacker, the Neon Angel. Call someone else. I'm heading east, not west. In Moscow, Fortune and Li Fong hire a Russian pilot to fly them to China. Whatever they do, they have to avoid Feng Wang and his men. Back in the battle in Wakanda, Doom cuts into Thandaza's power source. With the leader weakened, Doom is able to reach into Thandaza's cybernetic body and turn off the interior generator. In his final moments, Thandaza reclaims some semblance of himself, of his sanity, and tells his granddaughter that the future belongs to her. 
Doom explains to her that the revival was one of continued agony to Thandaza. When I shut him down, he seemed grateful. They agree that the leader is better remembered in the shrine as the voice of strength and wisdom. Doom offers some of his wisdom to her. We survive our mistakes and grow stronger, princess. Wakanda is in capable hands. They agree to pursue diplomatic relations between their nations. Doom returns to Latveria content that aiding Okasana gave him the chance to access Wakanda's vast technological database. Zandra continues her training in Wakanda, though now she is watched from afar. A figure observes her training, thinking how much she moves like her mother. Meanwhile, Li Fong and Fortune arrive in Hong Kong, the only part of China still open to the rest of the world. And unknown to any of them, they are surrounded by assassins of Feng Wang. Thirty years ago, I walked into a comic store, and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. And we're back. We're going to discuss this Wakanda 2099 storyline here and then cover the next issue later in the episode. First, the end of story quotations. In issue 11, it's from Edward Thomas. And this is the first time I didn't recognize the source of the quote. I consulted the Book of Knowledge and learned that Thomas was a British poet, essayist, and novelist who lived from 1878 to only 1917. He's commonly considered a war poet, although very few of his poems deal directly with his war experiences, and his career in poetry only came after he'd already been a successful writer and literary critic. In 1915, he enlisted in the British Army to fight in the First World War, and was killed in action during the Battle of Arras in 1917, soon after arriving in France. That puts this quote in an interesting context. The past is the only dead thing that smells sweet. And then issue 12, it's from Percy Shelley. To be omnipotent but friendless is to reign. First, that's a pretty great quote, Mr. Shelley. Also, it works, both for Doom and Okasana. So, terrific choice for a quote as well. Now, I did not double-check, but I think that these are the first times 
that the story quote does not include the story title. I know that was the case in many of the early issues, and I even pointed that out, wondering which came first for John Francis Moore, the issue title or the related quote. I really enjoyed this little arc, I've got to say, and partly that's because as much as I like to think that Doom is a unique character in all of comics, he's actually part of a small subgroup of comic characters that Marvel has created. The superpowered leader or ruler. And that's Doom, Namor, and Black Panther. And anytime Doom interacts with either of those other two, there's a lot of potential for great story because those three have quite different elements and personalities from each other. But their role as monarch, as ruler, as leader actually binds them together in a strange way. They have an understanding for the weight of responsibility that they each have. And at least from Dune's perspective, there's a level of respect due to the others for their positions among their peoples. And that's referenced here. Dune acknowledges T'Challa's nobility as a fellow leader to some extent and equal. Dune understands, again, the responsibilities of leadership at this level. As opposed to people who may claim a mantle of leadership, even if all they quote-unquote lead might be a group that includes, I don't know, hypothetically speaking here, your borderline criminally too young for you wife, her kid brother, and I don't know, a lunkhead of an orange rock monster. That's just not impressive, quote-unquote, to lead such a group of nobodies. I mean, to be honest, so that's not impressive to Doom or to anyone with the smallest speck of common sense. But leading a tribe, a people, a nation, a world, that's impressive. That gets Doom's respect. The other one, that hypothetical situation I just mentioned, it's kind of like comparing the leader of Interpol or Scotland Yard to an elementary school hall monitor. I mean, I guess technically they're both in law enforcement, but it's not quite the same thing. Where was I? Right, Wakanda, 2099. I liked the way that future Wakanda is portrayed here. In just a few pages, and most of it not narrative dumps, we learn a lot more about the world of 2099 that we may have learned so far, at least just from the Doom 2099 book. We're not told this, but John Francis Moore allows us to infer that in the 106 years between the book's publication and its narrative time frame, that Wakanda has suffered a major fall. This dovetails with what we've gotten before from Latveria's history and the end of the Heroic Age. But it's some really good world-building. Because it's not T'Challa who is the national here, it's Thandaza who led the recovery out of that time of darkness. And this is the current princess's grandfather, so his leadership period may have fallen anywhere from the 2040s to maybe... 2060, 2070, which puts the fall maybe into the 2030s, and at least up to this point, looking only at the Doom books. I don't know what the nature of that fall was. Again, that may have been explored in other of the 2099 books going on at the same time. But my guess is that this fall probably has something to do with the the vicious love triangle that occurred in the late 2020s between U.S. President Kanye West 
Canadian Emperor Justinius Trudeau I, and Russian Premier Ivanka Donaldovich Trumpnova. But that, that's just a guess. I really like the hypothesized technology here. As we discussed in recent issues, the computer technology addressed in this book is a little silly. Anytime wire goes into cyberspace, it's a little silly, because conceptually that's so far out of date. That's one of the problems you can run, run into writing a futuristic story. But some of the stuff that Wakanda is doing is still, even 25 years later, still advanced technology from where we are now. The genetic mapping we've almost caught up with. I was going to make a 23andMe reference in the synopsis, but I passed on that. But atmosphere-controlling, orbiting weather satellites? Now that's cool. I look forward to that. And the big one, cryogenics. Yes, it's a common sci-fi trope, and some businesses are trying to make a go of it in the real world today. But at best, we've only got the first part figured out, like the freezing part... But Wakanda has mastered, well, sort of mastered, the thawing out part, too. And here in the mid-2010s, we're a long way away from that. We are reintroduced to Dr. Quinones in the storyline, and I admit that my first thought was cool. That's the doctor who helped Doom when he was upgrading himself back in, like, issue two. Good to see her again. And then my second thought was, hey, it's kind of a crazy coincidence that the same doctor would be here and would be there too. I don't think I like that. But then my third thought was, no, wait a minute. If this is the doctor that helped upgrade and restore Doom, then that's exactly who the Princess of Wakanda would seek out to help revive her grandfather. She's the best in the world, so it does make sense that she'd be in both places. Now that was never discussed in the book. I'm reading into that. But I think it's there, and I'm impressed enough with the rest of the intentional world-building that's going on in this series that I'm comfortable making the assumption that that was intentional as well. So I love this future take on Wakanda, as I've enjoyed future Latveria. I do have an issue or two with future Russia, and even more so with future China. Of course, it's a little trickier with real-world countries, real-world societies, obviously. But the characters go to a bar in Russia 2099 that's themed for before the fall of communism. They're reliving Soviet glory and all that. Seems like an odd choice, but this book was written only a few years after the fall of the wall. So it's fair to think that that would be on the mind of the writer. And there are themed bars and restaurants in the U.S. about the turn of the last century, sort of into the into the roaring 20s. So... I can sort of buy that one. But China is the one that I think John Francis Moore maybe should have thought a little more about. They're going to Hong Kong first because that's the only way into mainland China. And that was pretty true in 1993, but to assume that that would still be true in 2099? I don't know. It's just as imaginative as Moore has been with his world building to assume that nothing would change as a result of the 1997 transfer of Hong Kong from the British to China a hundred plus years later, I don't know, that that seemed the least believable bit of world building. But that's a minor quibble 
in a storyline otherwise characterized by really nice characterizations. I really liked the conversations, the debates between Princess Okasana and Mikalali about whether it was a good idea to revive the old king. Both of their arguments are given legitimacy. His arguments are based in his respect for the king as well as his belief in the princess. She doesn't need to revive him. She can lead herself. They're disagreeing because he believes more strongly in her than she does. And that's a subtle bit of of solid writing. Now, of course, for dramatic effect, we have to have Mikalele go crazy and fire some weapons and get killed. But his arguments were strong. As a matter of fact, part of the lessons learned by Okasana by the end of the arc were that his arguments were probably correct. She is ready to lead. So like I said, really enjoy this arc. And we do have some plot threads left dangling for future stories. Zandra is still in Wakanda in training. We've got the team in Hong Kong looking for Kaz. We've got Wire with this get-out-of-cyber-jail-free card, whatever that is. So let's take a break here and see what plot threads are picked up when we get to Lucky Issue 13. Two hundred and twenty-nine different characters spanning the galaxies of the Legion of Superheroes, presented across seven comic book issues. A new miniseries as part of the Who's Who podcast. To handle this many characters, the Irredeemable Shag is bringing in a ringer, or maybe we should call them flight ringers. Who's who in the Legion of Who's who in the Legion of Who's who in the Legion of Superheroes? The Legion of Superheroes in the Legion of Superheroes. The Legion of Superbloggers team up to present Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes, a three-episode miniseries in 2017, part of the Who's Who podcast on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Long live the Legion. And we're back. Again, like its predecessors... Doom 2099 number 13 had a cover price of $1.25, meaning again I acquired this book at a solidly acceptable 80% markdown. This issue, issue 13, also was written by John Francis Moore, but the art was done by Enrique Alcatena. The cover of issue 13, which was by Broderick and Nyberg, shows Doom tangled in green vine-like energy blasts with a scary, demony-looking being in the background. The phrase, Necrotech Rising, appears across the bottom of the cover. The story, titled Harvest of a Quiet Eye, starts with Vasari, a librarian who has broken down various geometric mathematical tomes into computer language, but instead of gaining knowledge, he accidentally brings a demonic energy being into our dimension, who then takes over Vasari's body. Ah, to have form once more, and with form to have purpose. It is at long last time to seek out the Vishanti power that exiled me from this plane, and claim it for my own. Meanwhile, along with the young mute healer Vox, Doom travels to a Byzantine library hidden in the hills of Latveria. 
He believes that maybe these mystical books will in some way restore his lost memory. The librarian warns him of the risk of mixing science and magic. But he trusts Vox's trust in Doom and tells him of the eyes of Agamotto. Doom thought there was only one eye, but there are in fact three. The library is attacked by Necrotech, which is the name taken by the demonic entity. Vox, who is the possessor of the first eye, fears he is too small to combat the demon and transfers the eye's power to Doom and will guide him in the necessary spellcasting. With Vox's help, Doom battles the demon. Necrotech offers to Doom the notion that if he admits defeat, he will allow Doom to witness his glorious ascension. It's a pretty great offer, but Doom chooses strategic retreat, but only for a moment. In Hong Kong, Fortune and her allies are surrounded by the assassins from the last issue, but Lei Fong easily outmatches them all in combat, but she warns Future that there will be more. Below the monastery library, Doom attempts to learn all he can about the demon, but he is quickly found, and the battle commences once more. Necrotech shows Doom flashes of his tragic past, including his love, Margareta. Give me the amulet, and I will complete the puzzle of your life. But Doom has dealt with his kind before, and I will not deal with Hellspawn ever again. Suddenly, the eye attacks the demon. Necrotech realizes it is Vox and not Doom who controls the blasted eye, and he leaves to seek him out. We cut briefly to cyberspace, where Duke Stratosphere sees the ground shifting beneath him. Something is eating away at this whole realm, and he has a bad feeling about this. The mute boy, Vox, is located by the demon, as Necrotech holds the boy in his grip, Doom enters and offers him the eye in exchange for Vox. I thought you did not deal with Hellspawn, he taunts. But Doom has no choice. Necrotech agrees to the trade, but as the demon holds the eye in his hand, Doom steps away from a monitor. Displayed on the screen is a magical symbol which casts the demon back to the Greylands. It merely took time to scroll through all the information about Necrotech's, the demon's, past appearances on Earth to find the way to return him to the Nether Sphere. Doom holds the eye in his hand and ponders on all the things he could do with its vast power. But ultimately, he hands it back to Vox, its true owner. And Vox, the mute healer, looks at Doom and speaks. Thank you. So as Trennis Magnus, the Emperor of Podcasting, would ask, what did I think of this? As always, we start with the quote for the issue. This one is from William Wordsworth. In common things that round us lie some random truths he can impart. The harvest of a quiet eye that broods and sleeps on his own heart. See, now we're back to a quote that includes the title of the story. It is kind of strange that that hadn't happened in the prior two issues. 
Well, the story itself here was a bit standard, and the art change gives it the feel of a fill-in. We are getting a major crossover event next issue, which just emphasizes the fact that this is the issue that just needs to exist to get us to that event. We do make some progress on the China subplot and on the cyberspace subplot. I would like to have revisited Xandra and Wakanda, but you can't have everything. But for all of that, it's a decent read. Alcatana does a good job giving us the crazy mystical energy stuff and the demonic shape of Necrotech. The only problem with Necrotech, as a matter of fact, is that Necrotech is such a 90s name. Well, I guess I should clarify that. I mean a 1990s name. But the story itself, the fight, the Agamotto stuff, that all worked. And Doom using information from a secret library to defeat a demon? Come on. Of course I'm going to dig that. And I'll be honest, the relationship between Doom and Vox is pretty great. Their connection has been noted before, but this is the first time it's been, you know, focused on in a story. The boy's trust in Doom is what leads the librarian to trust Doom. So we get another example of just how highly thought of Vox is. He is known amongst people who know magic, who know the supernatural. And then at the end, when he finally speaks, I'm not going to lie, that's a dramatic moment. Now, technically speaking, that last part with Vox speaking is not actually the end of the issue. There's a one-page scene about this Valhalla project that's been mentioned a few times recently. And that all leads into the 2099 wide event the fall of the hammer. But we'll talk about that next time we talk about Doom 2099 in episode 99. The verdict on Doom 2099 issues 11, 12, and 13 after spending too long in cyberspace. It's good to be back in the real world. I loved the trip to Wakanda and the trip to the Library of Supernatural Knowledge, that wasn't so bad either. All of these books, definite quarter bin deals. In the interest of full disclosure, and as a professional academic, I need to say that for preparing the synopses for these three issues, I use the summaries at doom2099.com as jumping off points. That wraps up my coverage of Doom 2099, issues 11, 12, and 13, bringing episode 89 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. In episode 90, we're heading back to the final episode with the book selected by recent contest winner Tom Harris. And that means we'll be talking about the Enemy Ace special from DC Comics from 1990, which is a reprint of the Ace's first two appearances, both from 1965. Really looking forward to that one. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, Doctor Doom, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin.
Quarterman Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>